Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 41, and we're dealing with events in 1979. One of these, as you're about to hear, involves the Rhodesian Airlines Vickers Viscount that was shot down, and the SA Air Force was involved in the response. And that was to target a Zipra base in eastern Angola. While the new year of 1979 began relatively peacefully, that changed in February when 250 Swapo soldiers crossed the cutline into southwest Africa. The summer rains had been good, and then on the 13th of February, a blinding rainstorm saw insurgents attacking in Congo base, which was 15 kilometers from the border. However, that assault was a glancing blow, and Swapo melted away almost immediately. The rain cut visibility and washed away their tracks, so follow-up operations were hampered, but Swapo would be back, as you're going to hear. P.W. Bhutto was the new hawkish prime minister in South Africa, who took over from B.J. Forster, who was presumed too soft by the militarizing National Party. Pretoria was bristling for a fight, and Swapo's cross-border attacks led to a few diplomatic messages being exchanged, while in the background, Bhutto's government was preparing for another invasion of southern Angola. First, though, the South Africans sent a terse note of protest to UN Secretary-General Kurt Voltheim, warning that the whole edifice of agreement which we'd built so carefully over the past period is in danger of collapse in the light of Swapo's dastardly attack. Meanwhile, Pretoria was making plans for its own dastardly attack. Pretoria had been publicly urging the arrival of the UN Transitional Agreement Group of UNTAG, which they said they wanted in place by the end of the month to help set up elections. These, of course, were doomed anyway because Swapo had decided that it wanted to seize power along the lines of an MPLA-style revolution rather than through the ballot box. Swapo duly boycotted the elections. The South Africans, meanwhile, were pretty much of the same opinion privately, although publicly they continued to push for Resolution 435. Pretoria's strategy now was to buy time because they realized that a quick solution would bring the ANC closer to their borders from a newly independent Namibia. The longer Swapo could be kept at bay in Namibia, the better they could cope with their own internal war against the ANC and the PAC. The apartheid government was already facing the fact that Mozambique to their east and Rhodesia in the north were exposing the white minority government to military encirclement by enemies. Kurt Voltheim refused to confirm the deadline for the arrival of this peacekeeping force UNTAG, and in backroom discussions the South Africans were reminded that peace was actually being discussed before they launched Operation Reindeer the preceding year that pulverized Kasinga. That had put paid to any further discussions with Swapo. But it wasn't all one-sided. Swapo's leader Sam Nyoma had also told UN Special Representative Marty Atasari that he wouldn't abide by the rules that his men were supposed to be restricted to their bases. Instead, he demanded the SADF reduce their numbers inside southwest Africa and Namibia before he'd consider further discussions, which of course would leave his forces running around Avomberland and beyond shooting or killing anyone who didn't conform to their radical agenda. Both sides were dead set on sabotaging the talks because strategically both sides could gain more from time-wasting than speeding up. There's some debate these days about who was really to blame but I'm afraid any student of basic political and military strategy wouldn't need much time to come up with the same conclusion. The blame rests squarely on both sides. I've spoken to apologists for both Swapo and the National Party, and they use exactly the same logic against each other. We couldn't trust them, they say. It was them killing us, so how could we talk? 
Then, of course, geopolitics spoils the scenario planning if you're dealing with internal politics as a driver of military strategy, as both Trump and Biden have recently found out. In Pretoria's case, and just to make sure there was no confusion, P.W. Bush vowed not a single soldier would be withdrawn unless a ceasefire was declared first, and of course, that meant the end of talks. So Swapu's armed wing plan launched a series of attacks on Novumberland civilians through February, and on the 26th of February, they targeted another security force base at Ulundu. This was the home of 3-2 Battalion, which had been sweeping southern Angola, and by now Swapu was highly aware of this unit of former FNLA and other soldiers from Angola. The attack was a failure. All projectiles fired at the base missed, and the FAPLA group moved off at speed, knowing how effective 3-2 Battalion was at tracking and follow-up operations. And yet Swapu's initial public relations exercise was effective. Plan had the gall to attack the crack soldiers of 3-2 Battalion. Unfortunately, Swapo then followed up that useful PR moment with a clearly exaggerated statement about killing 300 South African soldiers, destroying two bases and shooting down two aircraft. Neutrals smiled sarcastically at that claim. If 300 South Africans had died, the media back home would have gone to town as they did with the Katima Mulilu disaster. There would be no way of hiding 300 bodies from the South African public, I'm afraid. Grandiose posturing was the order of the day, and as you're going to hear, the SADF was as prone to grandiose posturing as anyone else. By now, the new commander of 3-2 Battalion was Commandant Dion Ferreira, callsign Falcon. Previously, the commanding officer had concentrated on the day-to-day running of the unit, leaving Major Eddie Fulun to focus on military operations. But Ferreira was a real soldier's soldier and took personal control of operations right from the start. Given the strategic value of 3-2, he decided that all future deployments should be confined to Angola and that other units should be used in southwest Africa. As we know now, 3-2 Battalion actually ended up inside South Africa itself after 1989 and in the townships to make matters worse. I watched 3-2 as a journalist inside Polar Park near Johannesburg in 1992, working for local radio station 702. Polar Park is part of the Tokoza Township area southeast of Johannesburg, and 3-2 were clearly out of place. Using top-of-the-line special forces to police civilians never ends well, and I'm afraid in that case it didn't. We'll get back to those events later. It's time to step back for a second and consider what else was happening in the region at the end of the 70s. The situation in Rhodesia was approaching resolution in 1979 as Ian Smith accepted the idea of majority rule for the first time and he also accepted the concept of a transitional administration being set up. The ferocity of the conflict there, the pure-blooded viciousness, had shaken those covering the war as journalists. Nuns were raped and bayoneted to death along with children. Civilians were caught in the middle of the struggle. The propaganda machine back in South Africa was pumping out messages of the slaughter in order to galvanize their white electorate. The Roy Gafar, Red Danger or Red Terror narrative was being televised and media published the photographs which were grisly, gruesome and designed to frighten the white minority, along with something called the Swart Gafar, the danger of black majority rule. The ferocity increased in February 1979, when Rhodesian Airlines lost a second Viscount airliner shot down by the Zimbabwe People's Revolutionary Army, or ZIPRA, using a Soviet Sam-7 missile 
killing all four crew and 54 passengers shortly after takeoff from Kariba. The South Africans, like the Rhodesians, sought revenge because the commander of the Air Rhodesia Flight 827 Viscount was former SAA Force pilot Jan Andre Duplessis. Just to add to the terrible instance of horrible coincidences that take place in war, the wrong plane had been shot down. Later, Commander Joshua Nkomo confirmed Zipra were targeting Rhodesian Commander of Combined Operations Lieutenant General Peter Walls, who was due to take off the same morning in the same type of plane from the same airport, but his Viscount flew out 15 minutes after the wrong one had already been hit. War is full of mistaken identity and this was case in point. And now a retaliation strike on a Zipra camp near Luso in eastern Angola was planned. Four Rhodesian Air Force Canberra bombers were available, but more firepower was needed, so Salisbury turned to the SA Air Force's 12 squadron in what was known as Operation Vanity. Three SA Air Force Canberras duly took off from Vitacliff at 1815 hours on the 25th of February, crewed by Major Hannes Becker and Lieutenant Rim Mouton, Captain Roly Jones, Lapis Lavaskachny, and Lieutenants Wally Murray and Owen Doyle. They flew extremely low level at first heading towards the Victoria Falls, but eventually the dark forced them to climb. When they arrived at the falls, the runway lights were turned on for a minute, allowing the Canberras to land before being switched off. Blackout measures were in place, and Rhodesia was in the final months of its existence. Within a year, elections would be held and the country would revert to its Shona name, Zimbabwe, which means venerated house. So back at Victoria Falls, the two sets of crew were briefed by 5 Squadron Rhodesian Air Force Commander Chris Dixon about the bombing raid on the Zipra camp near Luso. The target was clearly military. No town was involved. A large camp outside Luso, 600 nautical miles northwest of Victoria Falls. Living there were an estimated 3,000 Zipra soldiers being trained by Cuban and East German advisors and accommodated in rows of flat-roofed bungalows with canvas sides. Six of the Canberras were armed with Alpha bombs, those round anti-personnel devices used during Operation Savannah. One Canberra carried six 1,000-pound bombs with delay fuses. The other six had steel mesh baskets called hoppers, filled with 50 Alpha bombs each, carrying 300 per aircraft. These were going to cause carnage. At dawn on the 26th of February 1979, South African and Rhodesian crews walked out to do the pre-flight inspections under the command of squadron leader Chris Dixon. But the leader had a problem. His radio failed to work on startup, so the lead passed to Flight Lieutenant Fred Brent and his navigator Jim Russell. They were airborne at 600 hours 30, leaving Dixon behind, and they spiralled up to flight level 390, or 39,000 feet, to allow the string of Canberras to join information. Two Rhodesian Hunters strike aircraft armed with American Sidewinder missiles were launched to provide top cover for the bombers and a command and control Dakota was flown to monitor enemy radio. The formation routed westwards from Victoria Falls, then over Kazungula, where they then turned northwestly towards Mongu. Dixon joined them then after he'd fixed his problem with duct tape. It transpired. Then they continued northwest to intercept the Benguela railway line near the base outside Luso. Mongu Air Traffic Control demanded, Aircraft overflying Mongu, identify yourself. But the squadron ignored them. On board, the navigators were using a technique called dead reckoning as thick clouds obscured the ground. Then they began the descent through cloud and at 2,000 feet broke through, but only for a moment. 
They were cleared down to 200 feet AGL when the navigators left their seats and clambered down into the glass nose. There they lay prone and read their maps directing the pilots to the target. They were slightly west of Luso, but swung quickly back onto course and hit their initial point or IP. This was a prominent kink in the railway line when they swung eastwards towards their target. The Canberras split in two formations, a four-ship and a three-ship, as Brigadier General Dick Lord explains in his book From Fledgling to Eagle. They also flew straight into a powerful thunderstorm, making it extremely difficult for the navigators to set up their sights for the bombing. Canberras have huge wings, and this made the turbulence even worse, like a bucking bronco, some said. The crews had to shout at each other, the rain and hail were so noisy, until Hannes Becker yelled the famous command, Freistart, which was to ensure final checks were complete. Then, two minutes from the target, they flew out of the storm. The noise suddenly ceased, and now they were in clean air at 200 feet AGL and flying at 360 knots, 666 kilometers per hour. The devil's number, and the flying devils were going to decimate the camp. Dead ahead were the bungalows and no sign of anti-aircraft activity just yet. As the formation climbed from 200 to 300 AGL, bomb doors were opened which caused the Canberras to slow to 350 knots. They were now so low that one of the pilots saw a man emerge from a bungalow carrying a bucket. The man proceeded to drop the bucket and dived back into the bungalow as the Alpha bombs were released. The aiming device and release for these bombs was a simple sight fitted in the nose of the Canberras. The navigator would patter or talk the pilot onto the target as it appeared in the clear vision panel. 1,800 Alpha bombs were then scattered across an area of around 300 meters by 1,000 meters, and after bouncing once, they rose to 3 meters in height, then exploded, flinging shrapnel hundreds of meters around. The Canberras didn't hang around. They cleared the target area immediately, filming in reverse with special cameras set up in each plane. They then climbed to flight level 410, or 41,000 feet. The four Rhodesian Canberras flew to Victoria Falls, while the South Africans continued on to Field, which was a tactical airfield 140 kilometers southwest of Salisbury. Those in the small town of Hartley nearby heard the SA Air Force bombers, but it was out of the way and almost all thought nothing of it. The rolls of films were removed and developed and became clear that the strike had been successful. In one frame, for example, anti-aircraft gunners can be seen on a 14.5mm anti-aircraft gun. Shortly afterwards, a bomb could be seen landing in their midst. All appear to have been killed. 1,800 Alpha bombs had successfully been deployed, as well as 5 out of 6 1,000-pound delayed fuse bombs. The sixth, however, had to be removed in a tricky process back at Victoria Falls. It had failed to drop. Later, the SA Air Force and Rhodesian Air Force announced that 160 Zipra soldiers had died and over 500 were wounded. This figure, of course, was immediately disputed by the Zimbabwean independence movement. Nevertheless, the crews congratulated themselves. But one crew in particular had no idea this would be their penultimate mission. On the 14th of March 1979, just three weeks after the Lusso strike, Wally Murray and Owen Doyle crashed after their Canberra was hit by enemy fire during Operation Rekstok in southern Angola. Another crew involved in Operation Vanity would die later in October 1979. Kevin Pien and J.J. Stradum were shot down during a Rhodesian airstrike on AAA positions on the Zanla or Zimbabwean African National Liberation Army base at Chomola Circle in Mozambique, just east of Mutari. 
Now we'll swing our attention back to southwest Africa and Angola, where SADF was gearing itself up for two more attacks across the border known as Rekstok and Safran. The number of contacts and skirmishes in northern southwest Africa had increased by 100% in the last 12 months, and a response was required. So operations Rekstok and Safran saw the first glimmerings of the SADF's new mobile warfare concept being tested in the field. As we heard from 61 Mech Commander Roland de Vries last episode, the idea was to use the concepts of localized command dispersed initiative and constant mobility backed up by extreme firepower. There was a weather challenge. During February 1979, as I've said, Vumberland was in the grip of what were called the Big Rains, an annual event, but this year wetter than usual. The Canberra pilots had already flown into the Big Rains, as we've heard. Low clouds and heavy showers hampered air ops, and the Shaunas or depressions were full of water, which covered around 70% of the normally arid sandy area. In his book At the Front, SWA Commanding Officer General Yanni Geldner explains how the SADF was trying to take the initiative by engaging the enemy in many small places at the same time. This was the core of the Rekstok and Safran strategy, making Swapo abandoned bases and scattering them from Kuneni province to the west and Zambia in the east. It was during Operation Safran, though, that a unique moment took place. An old grey-haired border official and a young teen working with him stopped an entire mechanised group from crossing a river because he demanded that they spray their bristling armoured vehicles with chemicals to stop sleeping sickness. According to Commandant Andy Andrews, the combat team of Irland armoured cars and buffles were hot on the heels of Swapo, which had withdrawn into Zambia. They halted at the Zambezi River when the aforementioned elderly Zambian man dressed in a khaki shirt and shorts and holding a clipboard stepped out into the road and ordered this battle-hardened group of South Africans to halt. As Andrews says, he seemed impervious to the fact that he and the little boy had brought a combat team of the SA Defence Force to a halt. The lieutenant in the forward Eland almost had a heart attack. He was so angry. But Andrews, being more experienced, took over negotiations. Look here, I've got orders to take this town of Sella and the ferry crossing, and if you do not get out of the way, the armoured cars will drive over you. What town, what ferry? asked the old man. They both looked around. Nearby there were reeds and a few huts. That apparently was the town of Sella. There was no ferry, just a small boat. Sometimes things on a map in Africa appear significant until you roll into town to find there is actually no town. This conglomeration of huts was indeed Sella. Before you go anywhere, sir, I must insist on carrying out my duties. I shall now spray your vehicles, said the old man officiously. By now, the troops and the buffles realized that a comedy drama was playing out and were observing the theater from their lofty height, smiling and shaking their heads. The old grey-haired man proceeded to position himself in front of each armoured car, write down the registration number, then wave at his young assistant, who leapt forward to spray the soldiers and their vehicles. What Andrews didn't realise is that they meant to spray the inside too. Along with the Elans, there were a few rifles, and the youngster proceeded to spray these with gay abandon. Soon there were troops sneezing and coughing, some jumped out to try and recover on the side of the road at this small village called Sela. The Zambian hygiene duo of the Ngana Pest Control had done what Swapo and Plan had not. They had forced an entire SADF armoured group to a standstill and managed to temporarily put some troops out of action. A kind of legal chemical attack, if you like. Then, adding to the bizarre moments, 
The old man once again faced Andrews and asked, What nationality are you, please? He must have known because the officers and troops were speaking Afrikaans to each other and Zambians in that area had been exposed to the language. Andrews was somewhat aghast. His jaw dropped. And then the Zambian proceeded to say, In any case, you're free of Ngana and may proceed, but won't you join me for a cup of tea? Commandant Andrews politely declined and the South Africans rolled through cellar, shaking their heads. As I've said before, African wars are unique. Because many South African troops had ties to the land as farm boys, they were aware of the dangers of tsetse fly, malaria, bulhazia, and a myriad other tropical and subtropical afflictions. So they tolerated a few sprays to stop sleeping sickness. Then back to the main job of killing the enemy. No contradiction there at all. The modest operations began in Ovumberland and the Rexstock forces swept through a series of suspected swapper bases, Mongua, Onkonkua, Enhombe, Heku, amongst others, while Safran began from the Caprivi and swept into southwestern Zambia after gaining permission from the old man and his Ngana sprays, of course. While neither op achieved much success, several hastily evacuated plan bases were destroyed, but of course these could be rebuilt and stocked within weeks so these two operations, using semi-conventional tactics, were really just a form of advanced manoeuvres. Practice, 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 they say. With that, we'll halt and secure the perimeter. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. If you want to chat, contact me through the website desmondlatham.com or abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, Fuzzbait. Fuzzbait.